0: Hey, everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. I'm excited to have on today's guest, Brendan Quigley. Brendan is a partner at Baker Botts Law Firm in New York City, where he represents clients on matters related to white collar government investigations and commercial disputes. Previously, he was a former federal prosecutor as an assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. attorney's office for the Southern District of New York, which we call SDNY. If that rings a bell, it's because one of our other guests, Joff Neftalis, also had that role. Brendan has tried over 12 cases that were brought to verdicts and was a senior member of the office's securities and commodities fraud unit. While at SDNY, Brendan also investigated and prosecuted a number of high profile cases, like prosecuting a former New York media personality for securities and wire fraud, insider trading, accounting fraud, market manipulation, and a few other things. He has also worked closely with other agencies like the SEC, the CFTC, and FINRA as well. Brendan is a U.S. Marine, completed two tours of combat duty in Iraq, and graduated from Cornell undergrad in Georgetown for his law degree, which is quite the resume. With all that said, Brendan, welcome on to the show.
1: Thanks, Jacqueline. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah. So some of our listeners probably already figured out why we asked you to come on. We have just wrapped up one of the biggest crypto and fraud trials ever for Sam Bankman fried or SBF, as we like to call him, who was found guilty on all seven charges related to fraud and money laundering. It's been about a week since all of this happened. So to start it off easy, what do you make of SBF's STNY trial verdict? Well, look,
1: I think it was obviously a very anticipated trial. It's only one of the more high-profile trials in recent memory. It was a unique trial in a number of ways. Number one, typically in criminal trials, there's not a lot of discovery, right? In a civil case, in a money dispute, you have depositions and things like that. Typically, witnesses in a criminal trial don't have a lot of prior statements. This was different, obviously, because one of the witnesses, in particular, SPF, had gone on a media tour, and that really gave the prosecutors in particular a large number of his prior statements that they could compare and contrast with his trial testimony. Now, some of that, they might have been able to get into the record anyway, even if he hadn't testified. But, you know, that kind of dovetails into the second unique thing about this trial was that the defendant testified. It's not unheard of, but most trials, it doesn't happen. A criminal defendant in the United States has an absolute right not to testify, and the jury cannot draw any adverse inference against him or her for not testifying in the criminal case. And then I think, look, I think some people were surprised how fast the jury came back. I think, you know, I've had trials where juries have come back very quickly. I've had trials where juries have been out many days. You know, as prosecutor, I got convictions and trials at both ends, both ends of the spectrum. So, you know, I think the jury here had heard a lot of evidence over a long period of time. I think the fact that the defendant testified for better or worse, Makes their decision, regardless of which way it's going to go, it kind of crystallizes their decision, right? I would imagine in this case and in other cases where a defendant testifies, they form a strong impression of the defendant one way or the other. Right. And they're not, you know, so concerned about government exhibit 463. They can have a more visceral reaction to that testimony. Again, I've seen it cut different ways, but in this case, it cut for the government.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up the media tour part because when SBF was testifying, the STNY prosecutor, Danielle Sassoon, was basically asking him, hey, do you remember saying this? And he would be like, no. And then they would pull up government evidence and it would be exactly him saying that. And like there is a reality probably where he doesn't remember everything he said. You know, like I don't remember what I said last week, but him testifying and constantly not remembering, quote unquote, everything definitely did not look good for him. So I think that point is Definitely significant as well. For all the cases that you've tried, how many people testified?
1: How many defendants testified? Yeah. I would say in 12 trials, and I've done a couple of trials now in the private sector, Mm -hmm. maybe one or two off the top of my head. Oh, God. Yeah. So it's
0: (laughs) it's like nobody.
1: I mean, there are are many cases when in a criminal trial, the the defense has no burden. Mm -hmm. The prosecution, and it's different than a civil case where each side is kind of, his evidence can put forth its evidence and it's, you know, who gets the 51% first, basically, in a civil case. In a criminal trial, the burden is entirely on the government. The defendant can sit there and do nothing. Then the jury's told that. That's not like some pie in the sky, you know, academic thing. I mean, the jury in a criminal trial, particularly in the trials I've done in SDNY, is repeatedly told that by the judge. And the judges in SDNY generally are pretty emphatic about that. Mm-hmm. But that said, it is not, uncommon in a white-collar trial for the defense to put on a case where they'll put in, you know, maybe an expert, maybe somebody who's familiar with the industry.
0: Yeah, they tried.
1: <laughs> right. Maybe somebody who, a character witness or two. And I think in a complex white-collar trial, that's relatively common, at least to my experience. It's uncommon to have the defendant testify, himself or herself.
0: So two parts to that. Do you think him testifying hurt his case? And then also, are you surprised that the jurors ruled guilty on all seven charges, given that there was so much evidence and he testified and the government provided a whole case basically to prove that burden?
1: Yeah, look, I think, do I think him testifying hurt his case? I, you know, I mean, he was convicted on all seven counts, so, So, you know, know, it's hard to see how it, it benefited him. And I haven't done a line by line analysis of the trial, but just reading from some of the media reports I mean it'll be interesting to see how the judge views it as sentencing, right? Because the judge was there also, and the judge has a tremendous amount of discretion in terms of what sentence he gives Mr. Bankman Bankman-Fried. Mm-hmm. and how will that impact the judge's view? Will that be something the judge refers to in his reasons for imposing whatever sentence he does? On kind of the length of the deliberation question, I think I was surprised by the length of the deliberation, but I wouldn't say shocked. The jury heard a lot of evidence there was a lot of not overlapping evidence but i mean you had multiple insiders from the company testifying about in general terms more or less the same thing as i said before he testified and i think that you know in some ways gives the jury a, a more visceral gut feeling about the case than it would otherwise in some cases that eners to the defendant's benefit right like this guy seems believable he seems like he would some cases this one it sounds like it did so i was I was surprised, but not shocked. And, and keep in mind, I mean, these people have been just, they've been there a long time, right? I mean, they're not like if they go in, and, and I've, I've never been on a jury, so this is a bit conjecture, and I probably will, ne- will never be on a jury, just given my background. I think I'd be the first person that <laughs> right. any lawyer would get off a jury. But, you know, they sat there for a number of weeks. They've been kind of away from their jobs and things like that, you know, had probably had family disruptions. And not to say that they didn't do a conscientious job, I'm sure they did, but. You know, at some point, I'm sure there were some people who said, "Look, we've heard all the evidence. We listened to this guy testify. How do we feel right now?" Right? You know, and that's obviously conjecture on my part, but you know, you could see that kind of dynamic playing out where they, if they had unanimity early on, they weren't going to spend a lot of time kind of going back over stuff.
0: Right. How does being found guilty on all seven charges kind of worsen the case for SBF? Obviously, it raises the bar for the potential maximum sentence he might or might not get. But opposed to having maybe a handful of guilty charges versus not guilty charges, what does that kind of look like when it shakes out?
1: Yeah, I think generally for purposes of sentencing, honestly, I'm not sure how huge a difference it makes because it's all the same kind of relevant conduct. If you had a case where there were kind of like discrete schemes and a defendant was convicted of some of those schemes but not of others, you could see it playing out differently. But here, it's more or less all the same conduct. So I don't think he is... Maybe at the margins—if you've been convicted of five counts and not seven—it might make a difference. But frankly, as a practical matter, I don't see playing a huge difference. There is a debate. Maybe there's a case at the Supreme Court this term over whether prosecutors can use what's called acquitted conduct at sentencing. It's been a subject of much debate that a you know a prosecutor can even ask the court to impose the sentence of the defendant based on the conduct, assuming that a defendant was convicted of say. Five of seven counts, the prosecutor can refer to the other two counts, the counts on which the defendant was acquitted at sentencing mm. and say those, even though the jury didn't believe them beyond a reasonable doubt, the court should still consider that conduct an imposing sentence. So I don't think it makes a huge, obviously he was convicted of one of seven, that might be different, but like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it makes a huge difference necessarily that, in terms of his ultimate sentence.
0: As long as it's like the majority.
1: Yeah, right. And long as, as long as it's <laughs> kind of like the key conduct, right? As long as it's kind of, I mean, he was convicted of the main fraud counts, everything else is kind of, I don't think an acquittal on it, like one of the kind of secondary counts would make a huge difference.
0: What do you think sentencing will look like for Mr. Bankman Bankman-Fried? It's up to 115 years. So out of that amount?
1: In the federal system, there are kind of two parallel regimes for sentencing. One is if you added up the maximum he could get on every count if they were run consecutively, right? And that's going to be well, plus 100 years. The second, frankly, would be very rare for a defendant, any defendant, to be sentenced to consecutive terms on each and every count. Usually when defendants are sentenced, if they're convicted on multiple counts, the convictions run what they call concurrently. So if you get sentenced on five counts that have a maximum of 20 years, it doesn't mean you'll serve 100 years. It means that you'll serve all five of those sentences basically at the same time. That's generally how it works. There are circumstances... Different cases where the sentence might run concurrent, but this isn't one of them. And then the second thing is the sentencing guidelines, which are basically just that a number, also almost essentially a mathematical calculation put out by the U.S. Sentencing Commission that kind of gives a sense of where the sentencing commission thinks a defendant like this should be sentenced, regardless of the statutory maximum. His guidelines are also going to be pretty high because, you know, unfortunately for him, what drives the guidelines range in a white collar case is what's called the loss amount and the loss amount once you start getting really above like a couple million dollars it gets pretty high
0: and this is in the billions
1: the sentence is associated with that loss amount get very high Mm -hmm. that said it doesn't mean all is lost i mean it's very good lawyers and i think you they will make every effort at sentencing to kind of thread that needle between and it's like multiple aspects of threading but i think again he has very good lawyers i think they're capable of doing it certainly where we respect the jury's verdict we don't agree with the jury's verdict.
0: We got that quote, yeah. And
1: we understand what they found. But at the same time, like, judge, you have to look at, and we're going to probably continue to press an appeal. Mm-hmm. But, judge, you have to understand that that's not the whole Sam McMahon freed here. And I think there are factors that they will point to, and whether Judge Kaplan, you know, how much they resonate with him remains to be seen. But the reality is, this is not somebody who the public needs to be protected from, right? I mean, I think that would be like, this guy isn't going to go out and open up another crypto exchange or, or any like, well, financial might, venture.
0: Well, he might. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you <laughs> it's know, unclear. Yeah, <laughs>
1: I think I think this is not a case. You know, I think that is, and that's one of the key factors that judges are supposed to look at in terms of sentencing. Is this somebody who? The public needs to be protected from.
0: Have you worked with Judge Kaplan in the past? Like, what is kind of his standard? Is it a certain range or does it really vary?
1: I think it varies. He's a very careful judge, and wherever he comes out, he will spend a lot of time backing up that and thinking about that decision. Uh, he'll read everything that everyone submits, and I'm sure the government will submit many letters from the victims of the fraud. The SBF's team will submit, you know, as many letters and testimonials as they can from people who knew SPF in other circumstances, from friends, from parents, from people he's helped. And I'm sure he'll read every one of those.
0: I've estimated that he'll get 27 years. That's just my intuition. Does that sound viable?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, it's hard. It's always sentencing. It's kind of the definition of rough justice, right? Because at the end of the day, you're putting a number of years on
0: on the value of what he's done for sure
1: yeah the value of what somebody did wrong versus kind of the other qualities of the person and you know to give them a chance at redemption essentially at some level so look i can see a sentence in that range i mean i think particularly if the judge was i mean he's a relatively young guy so you could see a judge kind of reasoning to himself or herself that Sentence in that range, hopefully, you know, he's in good health and he gets back out on the, mm-hmm. you know, he can kind of rehabilitate himself in prison and then have some time after he gets out. But it, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, the judge has a tremendous amount of discretion in sentencing.
0: What about for the cooperating witnesses like Gary Wong, Nishad Singh and Caroline Ellison? Do you think they'll face time?
1: So, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, they're certainly facing essentially the same amount of time as Sam Bankman freed because they pled to many of the same crimes as he committed, the government will write a what's called a 5K letter for them. Right, And I think the government's technically not allowed to advocate for a particular sentence, but I would expect under the circumstances they would suggest that a time served, essentially no jail time, is appropriate. And that is not uncommon with cooperators, particularly white-collar cooperators in the Southern District and kind of blue-collar cooperators also, that you know the benefit of testifying is that you get no jail time.
0: That is so interesting to me. We had Josh on, the other SDNY prosecutor. I don't know if you've ever worked with him, but he said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to me that most don't get time. I think what he said was, it's the exception, not the rule, that someone would get time being a cooperating witness.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair, particularly in a white-collar case. You know, sometimes with kind of more defendants who are, and keep in mind, the SDNY is a court of general jurisdiction. So judge like Judge Kaplan sees cooperators, he sees... The caroline ellison's the world you also seen i mean people who've been involved in murders right so it's it's
0: yeah it's a broad range it's technically
1: not general jurisdiction but it's they see all types of criminal cases and all types of civil cases yeah yeah and i, w- I would agree with that and it, sometimes in those but in those blue collar cases the defendant or the cooperate will have been incarcerated pending trial for a while so they actually they'll get out the same day or basically but they have spent some time in jail so and i say blue collar i mean kind of drugs, guns and violence, basically.
0: Do you think with those testimonies of those three cooperating witnesses from FTX and Alameda were good enough, quote unquote, to warrant no jail time, that they really did give the government what they needed to build their case against Mr. Bankman Freed?
1: I think the government the government's not allowed to advocate again for a particular sense for cooperator. I think the government will strongly suggest that their cooperation was fulsome, you know, and complete, which is kind of a not underhanded but uh, mm-hmm. suggesting to the judge that a, a non custodial sentence, a non-jail sentence is appropriate. And again, speaking kind of in the abstract, you don't know how the judge viewed their testimony, right? I mean, you don't have to have a sense of the judge. Does the judge view them all as kind of of the same coin? Did he find one or more of their testimony more truthful than the others? Does he feel a need to kind of separate them out in terms of what sentence they get because of you know, the value of their cooperation, the risks? You know, another one factor that comes up a lot in cooperatives is the risk that the cooperators face is, and again, I haven't been following the case, frankly, closely enough to kind of have a view on this, but did Miss Ellison, because of the leak of the diaries, did she face, you know, more pain or harm from testifying? And does the judge view that more favorably to her, right? And I think, again, this is where I think Judge Kaplan will take a very kind of analytical view. It doesn't mean they all won't get time served, but I think he's just not going to sit there and say... Uh, They testify time-served, right? I mean, he's going to look at each one individually and assess it.
0: Okay. On that note, we will take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we are back. Brendan, I would love to ask you, how will SBF's other pending trial for March 2024 be affected by this ruling? And that's the one for the separate political charges. And that's also being brought on by the SNY, I believe. Like, what are the odds they even go to trial for this? And will his team and prosecutors kind of just settle before then? What does that typically look like?
1: Kind of conventional wisdom would say that you would think they would kind of reach a settle, you know, some type of an agreement about it and it would go away. I mean, personally, I think there are a couple of challenges to that. And I, with my former SDNY hat on, you could see the folks in the SDNY thinking, well, look, a grand jury returned an indictment against him for these charges. We presented these charges to the grand jury. They indicted them. How did the interests of justice, and that's the verbiage I use, the interests of justice kind of merit essentially wiping away the grand jury's decision to charge? And so I think you could see some push from the SDNY not to just walk away from those charges. On the other hand, I don't think SBF is really in a position, well, he may not be in a position to just plead guilty to those charges. I mean, to me, it's not a sure thing that there won't be a second SBF trial on those charges. I mean, it's There'll definitely be discussions about that, but you could see how both sides could have a position that makes it, frankly, enforces a trial, right? I mean, he's not, Mm -hmm. a lot of it depends on how willing the SDNY is to just kind of give up on those charges or I just don't, not sure it would be in his interest to just plead guilty to them either.
0: Well, it's under my mindset and I'm not the legal expert here. That's why we have you, but it's under my thought that if he already, let's say he gets sentenced at the end of March, even though this trial would start before the sentencing, which I found a little strange. I don't know if that's normal. But let's say he gets sentenced X amount of years. Would he really care if a certain amount more were tacked on? And that's why, in my mind, I'm wondering if it's worth it for the SNY to do this trial, if they could just, you know, tack on some more years, if they're willing to even give him a plea deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, for him, every year matters, right? I mean, if it's I mean, we threw out 27 years true, before, yeah. if it's 27 years versus 32 years, I mean, you know, that's five, five more birthdays. And I, I don't mean to sound global about it, but that's the reality. It's five more birthdays in, in yeah. general, right? I mean, it's five more years away from your family. So there are some issues, you know, I recall in those charges with the extradition, whether it was properly included in the extradition. I think some of those charges. So it's possible that could give the SDNY kind of like a face-saving way to walk away from it. And maybe they say what we can include it in our sentencing submission is kind of this other conduct that was never proved to a jury, but is also out there that the judge should consider. But I don't think so, it wouldn't take like extra time. I don't think it's in SPS interest to kind of like necessarily roll over on those charges either. I just, just, I just do it, with, right? right? I mean,
0: yeah. So it's, it seems likely that a trial will actually happen.
1: Assuming the that the SDNY can't figure out a way to kind of walk away saving face, right? And again, I haven't been in the courtroom, but like, you know, it could be, I know the judge said, I think he. I read in the press, he said, write to me what you're going to charges. I mean, the mm-hmm. way that was conveyed, I mean, sometimes the, the emotions can convey more message than the words themselves. Maybe they're thinking like, look, Judge Kaplan really doesn't want to have another trial here. He's going to take this yeah. into account anyway. <laughs> we don't need to summon, you know, another 400. Now, you know, I mean there was concern before that the trial is gonna be hard to get a jury. It wasn't yeah, but because saw of publicity. It, right. Now everyone knows about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that a really efficient use of government resources? I'm just saying it's not an automatic thing that the SDNY will say, yep, yeah, it's not a good use of government resources. We're we're out. I mean, you, just knowing how they think, you could see a push the other way. That look, this is a you know ballot charge of the grand jury, and it's not really on us to kind of just walk away from it. Without good reasons. And maybe they can find good reasons, but just the fact that he was convicted alone probably isn't, again, knowing some of the folks involved may not be enough for them.
0: To wrap things up, Brendan, the question everyone has been asking is, what can we expect going forward for both SBF and the trial, which we kind of already talked about, and what should we keep an eye out for?
1: So obviously, sentencing is the next event. And it's, you know, in some ways, the trial is extremely significant. It was extremely significant. For the defendant, sentencing is now is the most, is equally as important, if not more important right now, because it's going to determine how long he spends in jail. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, victims of an offense have a right to speak. Judges are usually pretty receptive to people speaking on behalf of the defendant also. So it'll be interesting to see how both sides can marshal, you know, relative supporters. You know, I think there will probably be a post-trial motion for an acquittal. Those are very hard things get, but I think most defendants make them, particularly after a trial, and there'll be an appeal. And the appeal will happen after the sentencing, after the judgment. So that's an uphill battle on appeal for SPF. But I think the real main event is, is the sentencing and seeing how the different sides' arguments shape up in connection with that.
0: All right. I guess there's a lot for us to look for in the pipeline. Brendan, thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks, Jacqueline. It's good to be here.
0: We'll be back next week with conversations around what's going on in the wild world of Web3 with top players in the crypto ecosystem. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Jacqueline Melanick, and produced by Maggie Stamets, with assistance from Yashad Kulkarni and editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks for listening in. See you next time.